I came out of my house one day. This is just before I looked at, I didn't even watch any YouTube at the time. I didn't read any books. I was just, I didn't, I knew less than I know now and I still don't know anything. So I came out of my house and I looked around and I said, you know what? The fucking earth is flat. And I just, I felt that in my soul, I felt it. Somehow they went over the surface of the earth with a laser and he did a, a printout of what they say it looks like. From what they say, there's another continent right outside of everything we know. There's a wall and there's an ocean and in the ocean there's another continent probably the size of America. Really. And I think it's called uh, Dilka Research or something with an A. I could find it. I'll give you uh, the link. And every time I go up in a plane, I look out and I try to find the curve. I do. I look fucking hard. I look and I don't see no curve. I see flat. So as far as I could see. And every plane pilot who they interviewed, they say the same thing. The earth is flat. So I got to believe those men who their whole career is based on flying. When I go up in a plane, I'm looking for the curve. I want to see it because, man, I don't want to feel like the earth is flat. And I don't want to believe there was giants. And I and all this shit that I hear because it makes me want to fucking kill myself. You get depressed. You're like, is this shit really true? How could this not be true? The truth is, if you believe the earth is round, like I said, you already helped them. So by helping them, you already cut off your access to your power as an individual, to your divine right of being having that divine spark of God in you, because everybody has it. Every human who has a soul has that divine spark of God in them. And that's the last thing that they want everybody to realize is that they're special and they fucking mean something. Because if you realize that, you're not gonna wanna go to work. And then, because the guy you're working for is the same as you, there's nobody better or worse. And the last thing they want is for you to know that you're powerful and that you're the center of the universe and you're the center of everything. Everybody is their own universe in that way. There you go. Bilingual out this motherfucker, man. This is Danny Third with G. Moody here live in Spanish Harlem, 116th Street Festival, enjoying all of the festivities before the National Puerto Rican Day Parade happened Sunday, so today is Saturday, enjoying Puerto Rican culture and heritage. This is what this celebration is about. Cats is walking all around. This is what New Yorkers do. Real fucking New Yorkers come outside, hang on a stoop, and celebrate their culture this particular weekend. And it's the Puerto Rican festivities going on. But also, we got a podcast. We got to do our New York style podcast. We got to do it. We got to talk about motherfuckers is having a straight pride parade in Boston in response to the LGBTQ parade, the pride parade happening all over the country. It's Pride Month. But cats feel like they've been left out. They say, yo, where is the S? If there's an LGBTQ, where the fuck is the S? S stands for straight. Why haven't we been included? So these motherfuckers made their own parade. It's happening in Boston. It's happening August 31st. They filed a discrimination suit against the city of Boston because they want to fly their straight pride flag. So this is what's going on. I have no issue with it. But these guys say, yo, why can't we be included? I call this segment this evening. Me and my man Dave out here this evening listening to some great salsa music. Raw essence. In Spanish Harlem. My man Old School Cat, you're missing some good shit, brother. My man Lou Rivera. 
we're chilling right now. He's a great artist. He draws shit for this, that, and the third. With G Moody, I want to shout him out. We see a NYPD. Yeah. Police officer. No, he wants to use a bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I he thought was... he was on some player hate <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, motherfucker looks yeah, like okay. he's about 10 years old. <laughs> Boy, he just came from the PA. Yeah. You know, they, they just threw him in the essence. Yeah, yeah. Knowing that he's from, from uh, Westchester County yeah, or he's from Long Island. he never seen any black people before, but Word. he came in here to use the bathroom. Very polite. Yeah, this Saturday third with G Moody still out here doing it up. No doubt. Shout out to all the Bariquas today that we met. We had a great time out here. I know y'all motherfuckers gonna break night. Me and my man Dave gonna continue to drink and have a good time. I ain't got shit to do. I definitely got shit to do. And we are chilling out right here. Remember, rate and review this podcast. Go to Apple Podcast. Dave, can you get some more drinks while I continue the podcast? Where am I gonna get the drinks from? I'll find a drinks. Beer or, or whatever. Right. If you can find some shit. I'll find some, you know me. We absorbing this shit like Absorbing Junior. <laughs> we are podcasting live at the 116th Street Festival with my man Dave. I take it straight to hell to fill your heart with hate and consecrate your fate and Satan's fiery lake. Then I lock the gate. Make no mistake, the shit is real as Joe. We follow the killer's code. When we, we got Richard Morales in the place. Who else right here? Toasty. Toasty in the place. You guys were talking about some shit earlier. It was like um the different frequencies, dimensions, that there may be shit around us that we can't even see. Because we was talking about UFOs earlier and just how that would be possible that Navy pilots could see these things on their radar but not actually see them with their own eyes. So expound back on that shit, man. What, what do you think about frequencies and the possibility of there being stuff that we can't even see. Is that a real thing? Absolutely, it's real because when you have uh, scientists doing studies on different light frequencies using cameras that detect gamma or infrared frequencies that our eyes aren't physically capable of picking up, and they're finding clear evidence of beings or some kind of entities that are interacting with us without our knowledge, and it's not like one or two pictures, it's a steady flow. They have hundreds of pictures. What's next? I mean, if they upgrade our eyes in some way, are we going to be able to be part of a whole new world? Are we going to be terrified of what we see that's there? Personally, I feel that there are no UFOs. They all have been here a long time, way before us, that they're more of an interdimensional being instead of something that comes from outer space. Now, what do you mean by interdimensional beings? Well, what do you mean by that? Meaning like we live in a third dimension, and it's possible that they live in another dimension, like the fourth, fifth, or even higher. Um, there's 12 known dimensions, I think, in physics. It's possible that these beings are fourth dimensional or other dimensional of some kind and are outside of our frequency of light. Because what we can see as beings is a very, very small part of what's visible in the universe. It's only a sliver compared to what's there for us. Because we're basically blind to you know, many other things that are around us. Maybe that's part of the spiritual world, but it's definitely dimensional. Everybody knows fat Joe's in town. The Toronto Raptors are up three games to one against the Golden State Warriors. I predicted the Golden State Warriors would win in five games. That shit is over. But now, here's my thing. 
the pressure is on the Toronto Raptors to close out the series. Remember what LeBron did. Golden State had LeBron and these motherfuckers down three to one. LeBron won one game at a time and took those motherfuckers to the seven game. And then we know what happened. The block of the century. So Toronto, you have to win one game. Very hard to do when you know it's a closeout game. And also the Golden State Warriors knows it's a closeout game as well. So a level of desperation sets in and the play intensifies because they don't want to lose the series at home especially so i'm thinking this shit is going to go to seven my prediction is over i lost this shit of course but i gotta think if you got the heart of a champion you're not gonna go out four games to one you're gonna get one more and just try to take these cats to the seven games and see what happens who told you you can roll through my lyrics practically rose you from the grave like the crows do. i told you a long time ago don't ever fuck me because if i leave you half dead consider yourself very lucky. money money yo homeboy can you shake that there we go we got all kind of shit out here man new york style podcasting this Saturday third with g moody live Spanish Harlem at the 116th Street Festival as we wind down, rate and review this podcast. This is a unique podcast, five-star podcast out the gate. Make sure you rate and review it. Go to Apple Podcasts to do that. And if you want to support, go to anchor.fm slash g-moody. Had a great time out here. Been coming out here since the early 90s. This festival has been going on for 50 years. Always good to come out here. Shout out to all the Bariquas. I grew up with Puerto Rican culture. I love this shit. I love the music. Very rhythmic. Love the brass. Love all the percussion. And we're going to fade it out. Now, all this pill shit is crazy too, man. These kids be fucking with these pills. You have opiate receptors in your gut, okay? When they kick in and you need to get a fix, you're in pain. You're in so much pain. It's not like crack. It's not like crack. You feel, you'll do anything to get rid of the pain because it's your stomach. It's different. You're just miserable. You have nothing, but you just, you gotta get rid of it. So, you go take your pill or you do your bag of dope, whatever you're gonna do. That is the ultimate slave drug. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. Opiates are the ultimate slave drug. If they want you to be a slave, opiates are the way to go. If you are on heroin and you try to stop heroin, you can die. Okay, and I don't mean like, oh, he's sick. I mean like you could die that day. Okay, because your blood pressure skyrockets. Your, your fucking kidneys are on the verge of shutting down. And you're at home, not with medical supervision or whatever, nine times out of 10, trying to get better because you don't want to be a slave. But what happens is your body is to the point that it's almost not working anymore. And then when you stop doing it, I know instances where I've seen people's blood pressure 177 over 199. I don't even know how that person was alive.
This is Sanitary with G. Moody live in D.C. I'm with a powerhouse lawyer right now. I don't know much about law, but I am with one, and she's going to introduce herself. Go right ahead. Wow. Well, my name is Nikichi Taifa. I'm the president and CEO of the Taifa Group, LLC. But most importantly, I convened the Justice Roundtable, which is a coalition of over 100 organizations working in Washington on primarily federal criminal justice policy reform issues. And we just had a phenomenal assembly. We have quarterly Justice Roundtable assemblies where we have features and we have working group updates. We work with the legislative branch, executive, um, judicial branch, uh, with sentencing commission, various agencies uh, to seek to bring about reform and policy change. Is that very difficult to get these guys to change things? How long does that generally take? Or it seems like it's really tough. And I've just been here for a day. It is definitely tough. Like when I said, I have been working on the issue of the disparity between crack and powder cocaine since the early 90s. Since the early 90s, at a time when nobody was talking about the issue, at a time when I had to bring the NAACP kicking and screaming into the issue, because during those days, the only criminal justice issue that they felt comfortable talking about publicly was racism in the application of the death penalty. This is before racial profiling became a term of art, before all of the different things you see out there. So I've been working on the crack cocaine issue all that time. It wasn't until 2010, from the early 90s to 2010, that the law was finally changed. It wasn't made equal, it was just reduced from the 100 to 1 ratio, quantity ratio, to 18 to 1. Why did it take so long? Uh, this country, uh, whether it was Democrats or Republicans, didn't matter what the party, the whole mantra was tough on crime. Nobody wanted to seem as if they were um, I'm being soft on crime because they weren't going to get elected. They weren't going to get votes. Dukakis, Massachusetts governor, let someone out of prison as a result of the very effective um, furlough program. So unfortunately, this one person came out and committed a very horrendous, horrific uh, crime. And as a result, everything shut down. I mean, bam, just shut down. Despite the fact that many people, such as my colleague, Roach Brown, have been going out on furloughs for years, uh, hundreds of times with no incidents, no mis uh, uh, escapes or anything along those lines, doing positive things in the community. Those whole programs were just shut down because of that. That is why folk did not feel comfortable, particularly politicians, um, 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 advocating for anything that seemed as if they were soft on people who committed offenses and wanted to enact more and more mandatory minimum sentences and yeah. Was that the, uh, the genesis of that crime bill? Well, that, we need to understand it wasn't just one crime bill. There were many, many crime bills. You know, just about every year, from my memory, from like 1990, 91, 92, there was like a crime bill every year and culminating what I call the granddaddy of all those crime bills, the crime bill of 1994. That was really the last huge big bump because it had so many horrendous things within it, more death penalties, uh, trying 13-year-olds as uh, adults, the federal three strikes, uh, uh, you know, law, the eradication of the Pell Educational Grants Program for uh, prisoners, what they call truth and sentencing, which uh, made sure that people spent more and more and more time uh, in prison and more and more money for more and more prisons to be built all across uh, the country and in the nation. It was just absolutely uh, horrific. Did Joe Biden, who's running for uh, president now, did he 
write that bill? Did he have anything to do with that? He was very much a part of the crime bill of 1994. in the Senate at the time. One of the positive things that he did with respect to that was legislation dealing with the Violence Against Women Act. But there were so many other horrible provisions within that uh, bill. And that's why I said there wasn't much difference between the Republicans and the Democrats because President Clinton, Bill Clinton was the one who signed the bill. But it wasn't everyone. There were many, there were a number of members of the Congressional Black Caucus that stood firm and said, no, 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 we can't go along with this okie doke. And they drew up what they called the alternative crime bill under the leadership of then Texas Congressman Craig Washington. It also was called the Washington Bill. They had a number of progressive reforms. It had a complete fix to the crack disparity issue. It had had uh, uh, a fix to the whole racial profiling uh, issue. It had the uh, institution of what's called the Racial Justice Act, which uh, would deal with issues dealing with racism in the uh, in, in the application of the death penalty. It had the elimination of all mandatory minimum sentences. So this alternative crime bill, but it also had a lot of money for cops uh, in there because that was the sweetener. So what ended up happening in Longmont is the Congress went and took all of the money for cops out of the Congressional Black Caucus alternative crime bill, but threw away all the other progressive reforms. So now you have the 1994 crime bill that had all of this money for police, but all these other bad provisions and none of the positive provisions. It was a net loss. Do you think this reform thing is gonna go full throttle? Will it happen? Well, see, that's what the fear is. The fear is that once a little reform is passed, such as what happened with the First Step Act, that Congress will wash their hands and say, we've done it now, we passed some criminal justice reform, and then it'll be another quarter century before um, anything happens again. And we're kind of seeing that, we're hoping that that won't be the case, but it's incumbent upon anybody out there in your listening audience to really, really be part of the movement against mass incarceration, part of the movement uh, for change. People should go to www.justiceroundtable.org and see how you can be uh, involved in this movement so that we doesn't have to be another 25 years before there is any type of meaningful change. Why do you think criminal justice reform is necessary? For people who don't understand and think like, yo, these guys did the crime, man. Yo, this is, this is what it is. You make uh, choices and this you gotta deal with it. So why do you think the reform is so important? Criminal justice reform and transformation is critically important and people should care because it impacts all of us. Not necessarily in the way in which you think it might impact us, but it impacts us. And by, by that I say, Folk are going to prison for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and more years of dealing with mandatory minimum sentences. And when they come out, there's not the safety net uh, for them. There's not education. There's not housing. There's not jobs. So what does that happen? Then we might become victimized all over again because there is no hope. There's nothing out there to help people to get their lives together. The programs in the prisons are really not there and really basically non-existent. And with so many people under the yoke of mass incarceration, one out of every three young black men in the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system on any given day, at any given time, growing numbers of women, particularly black women, coming into the system, generations being in the system. What does that say to society? We don't realize that this country is far out of sync with the rest of the 
civilized world with respect to uh, incarceration. No other country, no other modern country has the type of rate of incarceration that the United States of America has. No other one of them subjects people to such lengthy sentences or life without parole. In Norway, the longest sentence anyone can get is 21 years. That's the longest. The norm is like between eight months and a couple of years or something along those lines. In the United Kingdom, there are 50 people, 50 people serving a life without parole sentence. In the United States of America, there are over 53,000 people serving a life without parole sentence. Something is not right with that uh, picture. As long as we treat the most vulnerable members, I guess you could say, you know, of society, the way in which we treat them, that says something about just what the nature of this uh, country is. Is it the type of caring country that it's supposed to be? Is this the type of country that really provides a second chance? Do we really believe in mercy, okay, and forgiveness? As Brian Stevenson says, no one is, um, should be judged forever by a mistake, one mistake that they might have made in life, yet that is what we do in this country. It has an impact, again, on generations. They use the inmates for labor now to create products. Oh, yeah. The 13th Amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist. Except. Except as a punishment for a crime. So when you're punished for a crime, you're basically used and abused. Convict leasing. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Yeah, so there's incentive to keeping people locked up. There's incentive in sending people uh, uh, to prison, there's an incentive in not letting them out right. because it's very profitable, just like the enslavement era. Right. Now, you mentioned a mandatory minimum. Yeah. What? <laughs> what is that? Before I, let, before I let you go, I know yes, you got to go, but yes. just explain mandatory that. Mandatory minimum sentence is a term of sentence that you have to serve. Usually it's for drugs or guns. Uh, it's basically a grid. It's a mathematical calculation. Look at a grid, that, uh, it tells a type of drug and the amount of drug, and then there's some correlating things that says what sentence you're gonna serve. And it's the, the, the minimum, you must serve, if it's a um, mandatory minimum of 10 years, you must serve 10 years before you're even eligible for parole if it's in the state system. There's no parole in the uh, federal system. But mandatory minimums are so egregious because it doesn't matter if you're someone like Kimber Smith and you're pregnant when you went to jail. One mat didn't matter that you're a college student. Didn't matter that you were beat up by your, your, your husband. Doesn't matter if you were threatened, if your family was threatened. The mandatory minimum law says you got to serve time. And the only way you can get out from under mandatory minimum sentence is if you provide what's called valuable information to the prosecution. And most of the time, snitching. most people, it's snitching, you got it. But it's not, it's even more than snitching because you gotta have information to snitch. <laughs> most of the folks that we're talking about don't even have information, even if they wanted to snitch, which most folks don't, because that's a death sentence right in and of itself. And then the conspiracy uh, incentivizes yeah. the snitching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. Yeah. Woo. yeah, it's major. But yeah, it's so major that, yeah, it's, we gotta go. <laughs> yeah, we gotta go, we gotta cut this. See, I could go yeah. on for days. This Saturday third with Washington Insider. Nekichi Taifa Esquire. The realness.